Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. Hey, Tara. Hi, Janine. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Are you excited to talk about homeownership today? Yes, I am. All right, let's jump into it. Now, both Tara and I are homeowners here Mm -hmm. in Calgary, Alberta, and Tara's actually owned a property in Edmonton before as well. Yeah. So maybe let's start with a little bit of a background into kind of your homeownership experience and journey, and then I can share mine. Mm, Okay. Well, the first one probably I would say is not great. It was um good purchase price. It made sense financially, like even from a renting perspective. I think at the end of the day, we were maybe spending 10% of our income on mortgage and um, condo fees and everything like that. Um, so it was very inexpensive. Um, unfortunately, with uh, even though it did have a good reserve fund, we did get the whole cash calls and everything like that and it did become more and more expensive and just a pain. It was just an absolute pain. So we let it go. And it was a condo, right? It was a condo. Um, we lived in it for a couple of years. We rented it out for a couple of years. And um, yeah, I don't know if I'd ever be a landlord again. It is a full-time job and uh, the profit on it just actually doesn't make sense. And from that property you went kind of back to renting Mm -hmm. and then now you own a house yes now we own a house so at one point we were renting out our condo and renting a condo at the same time um and yeah and then we own our house we moved into it um mostly because we didn't find a single family that we like to rent yeah that's looking at both that kind of you know echoes our experience we moved to Calgary probably five years ago and a lot of people were pressuring us to and by a lot of people sorry parents you're getting thrown under the bus it was parents saying that we should purchase something and we kind of had the I guess the reasonability to push back and say no which was good because oil crashed very shortly after that we've only just recently purchased a home we moved in about two months ago And, you know, this whole process for us has been, in a sense, annoying. I think similar to you, if we could have found something in the area we wanted that had everything we were looking for and was reasonably priced and wasn't going to bankrupt us from a rent perspective, we probably would have stayed renting. But I think overall, we are happy with our decision, although I'm sure there's going to be a lot of expenses that come up. Mm hmm. It's so expensive. It's so expensive and resale is not, it's not something that you can easily turn over. It's not something that you can easily get equity out of. It's not, it's not a typical asset. For sure. And I always say like, you can't cut a piece of drywall out of your wall and sell that if Mm -hmm. you find yourself in a predicament where you can sell an investment you know, whether it's a mutual fund or an ETF, you can sell that and get cash quickly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And uh, even if you did want to 
whatever that slogan is, unlock the equity in your home, you are getting a credit facility. So you have a mortgage and then you might be getting a HELOC. Uh, so a home equity line of credit, that kind of thing, where you're now maybe leveraging the entire value of your house. Yeah. I mean, your bank isn't an ATM and you shouldn't be using it as such. No. It is a long-term place to live. I don't even know if I'd ca- calculate it as part of an investment strategy. Um, and we can get into that in a bit, but really with how houses have been going, you're only seeing about 2% increase year over year. Whereas if you look at the stock market, you're getting eight plus percent year over year. But before we get into that, I want to rewind and take a step back and chat about saving for that down payment. Cause that's really the first step in the homeownership process is being able to save up for that home. So my first question to you is how much do you think you should save for a down payment and where should you be keeping this money? I think if you can reasonably save up 20%, save up 20%, um, as much as you possibly can. Uh, if you can't get to 20%, definitely look at the premiums for the insurance that you're going to have to buy, that you will be required to buy, um, and see if it makes sense to have 10%, 15%, 18%. It might be that you have 19% saved up, but it makes more sense to actually put 15% down and uh, save the rest for something else. And on that note, the CMHC organization is what Tara was talking about when she mentioned the insurance on homes that have under 20% down. So I would agree if you can absolutely save up 20%, do so. But when you are looking at purchasing a home, especially in some of the major cities across Canada, it can seem incredibly daunting to put down 20%. And if you're in the situation where you can't save up 20%, you need definitely at least minimum 10% down because if you get anything lower than that, and we can include this link for our subscribers, but if you have anything lower than 20 or than 10%, you're really chewing away at your equity with, with the premiums because you're finding yourself in a situation where those premiums are costing so much that it's just adding on to your mortgage. Yeah. And you're, you're then leveraging, um, over 90% of the value of your home. Uh, and if you had to, to sell it for any reason, it's unlikely that you'd break even. Especially uh, with a short time frame. Why are lawyers so expensive? Like closing costs and all <laughs> realtor fees, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Selling it's, it's pricey. is pricey. Yeah, for sure. All right. So on that saving for the down payment, where do you think that you should keep that money And obviously this is kind of going to depend on how quickly you can save up for a down payment, but I'm curious to know your thoughts. It definitely depends on the length of time. So if you're not planning to buy uh, for five or 10 years, I think it definitely makes sense to have some market exposure for sure. Um, Then when you get closer and closer to uh, the time that you want to pull it, like take the money out, um, then you might want to have something that offers a little bit more of principal protection. So you might want to do a standard savings account or even a GIC for higher interest if that's what you need. Uh, The GIC locks your money up. So unless you have a very clear date, uh, because you cannot unlock a non-redeemable GIC, but you can get a cashable, which I don't know, then you're looking at the difference between the interest rate of a savings account and cashable GIC. Same For thing. sure. And there are high interest savings accounts out there that mm-hmm. rival GIC 
rates right now. So definitely mm-hmm. do your research. I think you need to at least be getting probably 2%. If it's that big of a sum of money, you should be able to find a savings account or a GIC that's going to give you at least that 2%, if not closer to 3 Because um, inflation is usually around, well, I mean, not usually around, but, uh, you know, in terms of uh, monetary policy, people try to keep it around uh, the 2% range. Um, so yeah, so you want to have 2%, especially because you might not be able to find the house in the season that you want to. So it might be the summer of 2018 and you don't find anything that you want. So now you're keeping that cash liquid for the next year when you try again, um, to, to find the house or that whole year long process, right? So 2% for sure. And something interesting you said before was if you, have 19% down, it might actually make more sense to put 15% down. And that is something I wanted to touch on is the fact that you shouldn't be using every dollar you have to put into your down payment and put into your house. Because in that sense, you are going to be in a situation that is very, very high risk. So Mm -hmm. a good rule of thumb, I think, would be to at least have 20% of your net worth be liquid, at least, maybe closer to 25, in terms of having things like cash for an emergency fund and having some investments for your retirement in addition to that home. Yeah, and I think um, I think maybe that percentage will be different for each person, um, you know, based on how they view money, which we talked about before, and the industry that they work in, they might need something higher than that as well, right? Uh, yeah, it's so personal. Um, but yeah, you definitely don't want to lock everything up into your house because it's exactly the same kind of risk that you would be getting into with a locking everything away in GICs. Or um, one stock. Or Yeah, or one stock. I mean, it doesn't look the same in terms of risk when you're looking at just like an equity. So if you're just looking at one stock, you can see the risk. You can see the risk. You can see the market go up and down every day. The same thing is happening with your house or with the money that you're keeping in a checking account or the money that you're keeping in GIC. There's there's just different types of risk that you're getting into and you're you're putting yourself at, at risk of not having funds liquid. I always aim for 50%. I say I always have only owned a home for two months, but mm-hmm. we are aiming to have 50% of our net worth liquid and 50% mm-hmm. in our, I guess, tied up in our home. And mm-hmm. when I say net worth, I am meaning like the net of the assets, less the liabilities. So the amount of equity we have should be equal to the amount of assets we hold at least. And for us, that's where our kind of our comfort zone is. Again, everyone's going to be different, but yeah, you need to have money for things that can pop up too, right? Like legal fees. um, If you need to do landscaping, maybe you need to buy new furniture. Maybe you accidentally drop something on the floor and one of your tiles cracks, which happened to us yesterday. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's all these little things that can pop up. Yeah. And if you're the kind of people like we were with our first property and you want to gut the whole thing and renovate it yourself, um, you know, we were really good about um, budgeting for that and having a contingency plan and contingency funds set aside. (laughs) But once you start taking down Uh, I mean, even just flooring, once you start ripping up flooring, once you start getting behind drywall, so many things can happen with home ownership. Even if you don't do that, you can still have things, you know, nest in your attic or eat away at stuff or find out that, you know, maybe the electrical wasn't updated the way it should have been. Yeah, we've had three pigeon nests in the two months we've lived here, all of which 
are gone now. <laughs> I don't know if that's legal, but I like little things like that can pop up, you know, and if you don't get on them right away and you don't know mm-hmm. that there may, might be like an infestation or something like that. Yeah, that can yeah, and I mean, if you've highly leveraged your home too, you don't have the option of uh, using something like a home equity line of credit. You don't have that anymore, so you you better have some cash on hand. And no one wants to be house poor either. Like having money to do things like vacations and fun is important too. If literally you've maxed out what you can afford in terms of a mortgage and you put down the minimum so your mortgage payments are high, you're not going to be very happy when you're sitting on the floor because you can't afford furniture, cooking dinner because you can't afford to go out and just being like a slave to your home. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, if you have unexpected injury or job loss or uh, stopping work or income for some reason. For sure. So the next thing I wanted to jump into was using the RSP through the home buyer's plan for your down payment because I do think... There are a couple places people can save in addition to the ones we just mentioned. The RSP is, I think, a good place to save for down payment. And I and I want to say that um, these accounts I'm mentioning are different than investments. So I think a lot of people confuse this. So I'll just yeah. pause for a minute and clarify. But within an account like an RSP or a TFSA, you have the ability to keep your money in cash, which would probably earn 1% to 2%. You have the ability to buy GSCs and mutual funds and ETFs all within those accounts. So don't confuse an investment with the account. And so I think sometimes people look at you know RSP versus TFSA for saving for homeownership and a down payment. And unfortunately, the TFSA is named tax-free savings account as opposed to tax-free investing account, which is what I would change it to if I was Prime Minister of Canada. That would be day one. I would also change the term account because that's a total misnomer. It's not an account. It's a plan. You can have different types of accounts underneath that plan. Absolutely. It confuses so many people because they think they can only have one, one institution, one type of thing. They have to zero out everything else. No. You can have as much as you want. I feel like we should have to do an episode on TFSAs. Mm -hmm. I think that might be upcoming. That being said... Using your TFSA for long-term investing is how you unlock the power of the TFSA. And and we'll talk about that more in our investing episode. But the RSP allows you to pull out funds to use for your down payment. And the government of Canada actually recently just updated this. You're allowed to pull out $35,000 per year individual if you haven't owned a home for the past four years so between a couple that would be seventy thousand dollars that you could use for a down payment if you had the money in that rsp to begin with Mm -hmm. and with that you have 15 years to pay back that thirty five thousand dollars but remembering you are kind of taking money from yourself in terms of investment uh, return so i'm curious as to if you use the home buyer's plan, we did, but it was back when it was 25000 and what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, so um, my husband used a good portion of his uh, RSP to buy our first property. Um, I used a little bit. I was kind of apprehensive about doing it, um, and I guess I have kind of a controversial opinion. I used my TFSA. Uh, almost, well, not almost in full. No, I did not. But I used a good portion of my TFSA um, because you get your contribution room back. You get it back right away. 
you don't have to have any scheduled plan because when you're paying back the amount that you've taken out of your RRSP, unless um, you can are a very high income earner and can then go over and above that to apply a certain amount of it for the tax deduction as well, you could be um, limiting yourself over the next 5, 10, 15 years in terms of tax deductions too. And that's kind of what the RRSP is for, right? So if you're taking your highest income earning year, years and just using them for repayment, um, it requires more thought. It's a personal decision, but you know, it's something to consider. For sure. And I guess the only point I'd make on that is if you are in a, the highest income earning bracket, you do have to pay back a certain amount each year, but you get to dictate how much of yes. that actually goes towards the repayment. So you're looking at with $35,000, $2,900 per year, which is $250 a month. And if you're mm-hmm. in that top tax bracket, I hope you're contributing more than $250 a month to RSP. Yeah. So it wouldn't necessarily be for those who are in the top tax bracket, just in their highest income earning years, regardless of tax bracket. And if you've, like, let's say um, you're considering using the uh, home buyer's plan and also high, highly leveraging yourself and limiting your cash flow and that kind of thing, then you might be losing out on the potential tax deductions at your highest incoming, income earning years. Yeah, there's definitely a so, lot to think about. And I mm-hmm. think... Ultimately, what it comes down to is, you know, running the numbers, what works for you mm-hmm. and understanding the repayment plan as well. With the TFSA, I will say that, you know, if you're able to max that thing out and invest it for the long term, you could save yourself, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax. So it's also weighing, you know, what tax do you get back in your RSP versus what is, I guess, the future potential benefit for your RSP. And I don't know if there's a right answer to that question because... It's so challenging for everyone to know what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Yeah. I guess I'm team RSP and Tara's team TFSA. So it really depends. Yeah, it does. Now, moving along to the actual process of purchasing a home. I'm curious to know with your property here in Calgary, what your what your experience was like, um, specifically around, you know, a realtor and inspector mortgage broker, if you used one or if you used a financial institution and what it was like for you to close with your lawyer and any additional costs associated with that. So realtor, we ended up bringing our realtor down from Edmonton after just kind of not a negative experience, but just not a great experience with our first realtor that we found in Calgary. Um, I think realtors can be worth every single cent that they earn but they have to actually be working for you. Um, You have to really uh, know your realtor very well and make sure that they're invested in the market that you're looking in and that they know their stuff too. And on that, I think understanding how they're compensated Mm -hmm. is important because at the end of the day, they're financially incentivized to sell houses. Oh yeah. Um, And that's, so you can, I guess, get fee-based real firms now um, for selling your house and that kind of thing. I've heard some really bad horror stories with that in terms of, um, you know, what comes along with that and ending up paying more in fees and and that kind of thing. So I don't mind the percentage-based structure. You can negotiate the amount of percentage that you're going to give to your realtor. Uh, 
I've never negotiated our realtor down because he's amazing. I would uh, say everybody should use him. He, um, he's just good people and very knowledgeable. Do you want to give him a shout out? Sure. Uh, Christopher Hooven in uh, Edmonton. I will definitely give him free press any day. Uh, he's amazing, especially if you want to, I mean, when we were looking, especially if you want to buy a, a condo in Edmonton, I wouldn't go through anyone else. Fantastic. So once you had your realtor and you found your property or did you find your property right away? No. Um, the first time we found it relatively soon, but I think maybe we maybe we jumped the gun on that. I mean, it did look great. It did look so great. Um, then just other things happened, unfortunately, that couldn't be predicted. Um, and then when we moved to Calgary, it took a much longer time. And what, what do you, why do you think that was? Were you more picky? The Calgary market is much, um, in my opinion, I, I think it's a little bit more overinflated. It's definitely difficult to find um, the price ranges that you find in Edmonton. There was just a lot more to choose from um, that we found. And also, yeah, we were a little bit more picky because it wasn't, uh, when we were looking at Edmonton, we were like, we could do a single family, we could do a condo. It might be something we want to rent out once we start a family, move into a single family or something a little bit bigger, that kind of thing. So, um we were able to kind of just pick what was the best in our price points. And uh, when we moved to Calgary, we had very specific uh, criteria at that point because I was pregnant. And so once you found the place that you, you know, you put an offer in, negotiated with them, how was the inspection process? Because I feel like that's a fee that people don't necessarily think of when they're budgeting for this. And mm-hmm. I've seen, I guess, between three and $500 for mm-hmm. inspector fees. Again, like they can be worth every penny. Uh, make sure you have somebody who's uh, more motivated to receive um, the fee from you rather than referral from your realtor, I suppose. Um, but that's another, you know, having a good realtor because they'll have good inspectors. They're, you know, hoping for your referrals as well, right? Um, to build up their business because it is volume based. Um, so yeah, good inspector. Know a little bit yourself too. Know where they should be looking. Know what kind of tools they should be using. Have an expectation. So if you end up hiring somebody on a recommendation and they don't come with uh, anything to monitor for water or they don't get up on a roof, like that should be a huge red flag. Absolutely. And if you are using a recommendation from a friend, that's fantastic. But if you've never done an inspection, it might be worthwhile to ask friends that have purchased homes before to take a look at their inspector reports. And, and that's a great way to start to educate yourself on what they should be looking for. And I mean, I'll just jump in. Our inspector was amazing. I highly recommend him. And he said to us the first time he met us that realtors typically don't like him and to me that was like a a checkbox that was ticked because realtors in some situations just want you know the sale to close quickly and so Mm -hmm. if a real or if an inspector finds all these things the realtor is not going to be very happy and that is what ended up happening in our situation is I don't think our realtor ended up loving our inspector but we loved our inspector so much and he was so fantastic but I mean, if you have a good realtor, it should, they should be able to guide you away from the places that don't fit for you. You know, like they should be, they're experts in their field as well. 
Um, and they should be taking the time. Like I know when we were looking at with Chris, you know, we'd look at stuff and he'd kind of go through and say, yep, like I, you know, this, 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 you know, you put this on your list, but we're not going to actually go there. We'd sometimes drive up to a house and, you know, he'd take one look at it and he's like, I don't think you guys, like, I'm going to tell you why, but like this, this, this would need to be looked at. For sure. And unfortunately in our situation, we had a couple that were, were things that our inspector found that I don't think our realtor would have seen. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Water I mean, damage. That's why they're two different Yeah, fields. exactly. So uh, definitely get a good realtor and get a good inspector. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving into the more financial piece of this, what was your experience with getting a mortgage and a lawyer? Super, super easy. So um, we used a broker uh, both times, same broker. And, um, you know, I knew her from previous work and also through Chris and, uh, yeah, she's great. Um, you know, she was one of the first people that said, you know, it's not all about the rate. It's also about the terms. Like it's a legal document. Um, it's also providing you credit and lower interest rates sometimes come with a lot of strings attached that you might not want to sign up for. That's exactly what our mortgage broker said. And he obviously knew we wanted to get a low rate, but at the same time, being able to prepay and make extra payments was also something that was important Mm -hmm. to us. Well, and for our condo, we knew that um, we were thinking potentially flipping it. We were thinking renting it out. We were thinking like, this is not a long-term living place for us. Um, It might be a long-term purchase, but we may not... um, be living here right so we might need to restructure the financing we might need to, so we ended up paying a higher interest rate for you know not having as high prepayment penalties for you know if we did need to sell it we knew we you know we were going to have things come up and that was not where we wanted to raise a family we just didn't know how soon we would be starting that process exactly so definitely have a mortgage broker who's willing to educate you on those terms and Again, I would always say understand how they're being compensated. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on the difference between using a mortgage broker and a, like a traditional financial institution, you know, the big banks in Canada? Um, it's not too different, um, except that the broker has uh, access to different... Um, obviously different institutions they can get you a mortgage from the bank or they can get you a mortgage from a different lender um the thing about the banks is they are more highly regulated they're more regulated than the brokers are um they actually have different tests that they have to apply to you so you might not be approved for the same amount but that might actually be a good thing for you and just a sign that maybe it's not time to buy a house or you should buy um something that costs a lot less for sure And lastly, getting a lawyer, what was that process for? Was it as expensive as you thought? Yes. Uh, And I think, again, uh, ask around. Your mortgage broker should know uh, and and your realtor should know good lawyers and good value, especially the mortgage side should really know the good lawyers because that's where they're heavily impacted, right? They work um, with each other throughout the entire process. Um, they should have a really good recommendation. You can end up paying um, the same amount of money and not getting the same service. You need to make sure that you have somebody who's detailed, somebody with a great paralegal team too. Uh, that makes such a huge difference. There is, I will only use one law firm in Calgary. 
Fantastic. Yeah, I same sort of a thing. I it actually cost less than I thought it was going to. But um I think obviously depending on what province you're in, there can be other costs associated with like land transfer mm-hmm. tax. Mm-hmm. We're lucky in Alberta we don't have that. So yeah, just be again doing your research, be open and honest with your lawyer to understand what service they are providing you and how much it's yeah. going to cost. Well, and I think um, we had such a great team in terms of mortgage broker and realtor. We knew what the closing costs were going to be long before we even started looking at properties. And that's exactly it. You need to you need to know what you're getting yourself into. And, you know, we touched on this in episode one, renting being a waste of money, but I did want to just come back to how expensive it is to own a home. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there is the closing costs that are associated with home ownership mm-hmm. but there's also things like property taxes that you have to pay and condo fees if you're even if you're in a, a duplex or a fourplex or a mm-hmm. row house those will have condo fees associated to them as well as um, increased insurance and I mean we don't own a, a standalone detached house but I'm sure mm-hmm. you would be able to speak to the cost of maintenance yeah. in a house Yeah, it's a lot. And there were a few things that I said going into it, you know, being pregnant, having gone through a full reno before. um, I said, roof, windows, pipes, and electrical. I don't want to deal with any of that. I will do the the fluffy stuff, but those are some big ticket items. Uh, Roof can be pretty pricey if you need to replace it, when you need to replace it. There's a lifespan on that. Windows are super pricey. Um, you know, much more expensive than I thought initially. Electrical is a pain in the butt. Plumbing is a pain in the butt and also very expensive. For sure. And we bought a new build Mm -hmm. and there have been some costs associated with that that are, I guess, a little bit of surprises. So drapes and blinds, Mm -hmm. those don't come with new houses, surprisingly or unsurprisingly. And I mean, that's going to be a few thousand dollars as well. We got an air conditioner put in that wasn't there. So there are costs associated with homeownership that if you were renting, those would just all kind of be taken care of. Yeah. And I mean, if uh, if you are buying a pre-owned home, however you want to word that, um, not a new build, look for what's included in your uh, in your purchase agreement too. I mean, a realtor should draw your attention to it, but some people want to take their washer and dryer. Some people want to take the uh, lighting fixtures or that particular shower head. They're very attached to it. So um, mm-hmm. that's a really good point. And even with new builds, I think you should look at that. We had one that ended up falling through and they said that we would be like a gas range stove was included mm-hmm. in the, I guess the listing. Mm-hmm. And then when we were doing like the walk through the stove that was in there was not a gas stove yeah. and you, you know, we kind of went back and forth and back and forth and obviously that offer didn't go through, but it just kind of felt a little bit sketchy mm-hmm. with, you know, it, there was a stove, but it wasn't the stove they said and they weren't willing mm-hmm. to, to put in a gas range stove and I don't know. It just, it's definitely something to keep your eye on when you're, when you're looking at listings. Yeah. And that's super unfortunate too, because there's a measure of trust that the seller is offering you, whether it's, um, you know, kind of homeowner to homeowner or builder to homeowner, that kind of thing. And, uh, we walked away from, um, from one where you had put an offer in, uh, as well when it came to home inspection too, because we lost trust in the seller, unfortunately. Yeah. We walked away from three. So Mm-hmm. definitely also don't be afraid to walk away and yeah. hold your ground when you're negotiating I know for us we said like this is our top 
mm-hmm. on the place we're living now. And they kind of came back, went down 5K, went down mm-hmm. 10K. Then at some one point they were negotiating against themselves and we just held firm, held our ground and said, you know, this is our top. And mm-hmm. I guess we do live in a city where uh, we're fortunate that there's no bidding wars right now. Obviously, Calgary yeah. is a little bit of a depressed economy as opposed to somewhere like Toronto. But don't get so attached to a house that you aren't willing to do what's right for yourself financially. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, the last thing I wanted to chat about just before we close up this episode is determining how much house you can actually afford. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we've always been of the mindset that all of our living expenses need to be one of the four paychecks we get. So between Mm -hmm. my husband and I, we get four paychecks a month. We each get, you know, two per month. Mm -hmm. And so all of those housing costs and living costs should be able to be covered by one paycheck. And this Mm -hmm. is to protect us in case, you know, one of us goes on mat leave or one of us isn't working. Um, so I'm curious if you guys have a rule like that in your house at all. Um, we didn't have a rule. We never really used my income to qualify. So my income was just kind of additional. We didn't even look at that when we were looking at ratios, um, to begin with. And, uh, we never really had to use any of that because anytime it came to looking at spending more than uh, like half a million dollars on one property, I mean, we just couldn't stomach it. We just couldn't stomach it regardless of how much we were actually financing. Uh, I just can't see the value in it. Um, we've always just purchased a lot less than we can afford. And that is important so that you aren't overextending yourself. I know mm-hmm. typically they, they being the people of mm-hmm. the finance world say 30% of your net income. So sure. I think that would be a good rule to go by if you're looking. One of the other things that I actually came across while I was doing some research for this episode was the Globe and Mail put out what they call the real life calculator. Yeah, I've seen it before. And I did my ratio and I think mine was about 54 points. Mm -hmm. And so if if you're anything less than 75, um, basically they're saying you can do this. So you put in all your Mm -hmm. income, all your expenses for things like debt, like mandatory payments, so childcare, debt. Uh, savings, all that good stuff. And we will include a link to this in our subscriber newsletter. So please make sure that you subscribe. But it was interesting to kind of go through and see at what point our life would be kind of like that proceed with caution or see where you can cut costs or basically don't proceed because you're going to be financially stressed and overloaded at anything over than I think it was 86 points. Mm -hmm. So definitely a cool calculator to determine what you can actually afford. And I think some of the ratios that they use at the banks are on gross income and not net income. And that to yeah. me doesn't oh, make a yeah. lot of sense either. It's um, it's based on gross. So your TDSR and your GDSR is based on gross. Um, just everything that's coming through on your bureau, like we talked about your credit bureau last time, um, plus heating costs. And that's basically it. Um, if that's high and you're not on commission, if you don't have income that can't be used for those ratios that your mortgage broker and the bank are are using, um, just please don't go to the highest. I I would definitely advocate against that. I mean, the ratios are there to allow for so many different income types. Um, For example, a lot of commission-based industries, their full income won't be used for calculation. Um, pensions uh, aren't going to be used. Uh, income streams from uh, financial assets aren't necessarily going to be able to be used. Those kind of things, right? That's 
that's where you want the high TDSR, GDSR, because it's not a full picture. Exactly. And another one we had a bit of a struggle with was my husband was being paid in foreign income. So from the U.S. You can't use foreign income. And you can't use foreign income to qualify. So that was a challenge. But I think, yeah, the ratios they use at the banks are in gross income. So remember, that's Mm -hmm. not what's actually being deposited into your bank account. So whether Mm -hmm. they're taking money off for RSP deductions or obviously taxes, you want to be using the dollars that are put in your bank account when you're determining how much you can afford. afford. Exactly. And um, what your actual expenses are too, because it's just going off of what's um, uh, being uh, posted to your credit bureau too. It's not taking into account your childcare payments. It's not taking into account um, the maintenance of the car that you've already paid off. It's not taking into account that you have a paid off vehicle and you might want to buy another one. Like if you qualify for a, a house purchase and then go out and buy a car two days later, you may not qualify for the house anymore. Don't put yourself in that situation for one. And think about that too. Think about, I want to buy a, a car for my new house in a couple of years. I want to make sure I have enough room for that. And I think that just comes back to like financially planning and strategizing, mm-hmm. you know, what the next couple of years are going to look like. And you know, it's not going to be exact, but having a good idea when it comes to what you can afford, when it comes to a house is important for mm-hmm. that long-term strategy. Yeah. And if you don't have a, a broker or a realtor that's on board with you, then fire them, find someone else. Yeah. So our pink tax rebate for this week is to do the math and actually figure out how much you can afford. Even if you aren't looking at purchasing a home in the near future, it's good to get an idea early on what you can afford and where you stand financially so that you can plan for the future and use tools like the real life ratio calculator that we'll be sending out in our newsletter. And please make sure you subscribe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your money story using the hashtag FemFinances.